Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Manjula Selvaraja, in for Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. Canada is one of the largest importers of lettuce in the world. And a huge chunk of that comes from California. California has gone from one climate extreme to the other. That means in Canada? We got no lettuce. Vanishing veggies. How droughts in California could dry up our food supply. That's coming up on Day 6. Today... Parental rights and student safety. Those students know best what their families are like. New Brunswick reviews protections for LGBTQ students. Reigning in NDAs. There is a great deal of suppression. A bill to limit gag orders in Canada. And the TV tycoons we love to hate. Completely yucky and you feel awful and yet it's still addictive. Unpacking our obsession with succession. All today on Day 6, the No Heroes Here edition. California, Arizona, and Nevada have agreed to cut their water usage by 3 million acre feet by 2026. This week, the U.S. government brokered a deal to help save the sprawling Colorado River, which is fast drying up. More than 40 million people in the western United States rely on the river for their water. It also irrigates about 6 million acres of farmland. And what happens to those farmlands has a significant impact on us here in Canada because Canada imports a huge amount of our produce from the U.S. and in particular from California. So as that state gets hit by droughts and floods and wildfires and other kinds of climate-induced extreme weather, you're likely to feel the effect in the grocery store. Kate Allen is the climate change reporter for the Toronto Star. Her recent article is called Is This the End of Lettuce? Why Canada's food supply is headed for uncharted territory. Kate, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, in your piece, you make a reference to the Titanic. What's the Titanic got to do with Canadian produce? Well, believe it or not, and I didn't believe it at first, we import in Canada five Titanic's worth of lettuce every year. And actually, last year, it was five and a half Titanic's worth of lettuce. Wow. So you talk about lettuce, but this is much bigger than that. Can you give me a sense of just how much of our overall produce is imported from California? Yeah, so three quarters of our fresh fruits and vegetables here in Canada are imported every year. And a huge chunk of that comes from California. So 80% of our celery comes from California. Three quarters of our lettuce, three quarters of our cauliflower and broccoli, three quarters of our spinach, half of our uh, cabbage and kale, it all comes from California. Do people tell you they're surprised by this? Well, I was surprised. I was surprised. I had no idea until I started looking at some tables from Agriculture Canada. And the more I looked at these numbers, the more I was like, why aren't we talking about this? It's a huge reliance on a really tiny part of the world. How did this one state come to play such a huge role in our produce supply? 
Well, California's Central Valley is one of the most productive agricultural regions in the entire world. And part of the reason they've been able to do that is that in addition to rainfall that's collected in reservoirs, they've been pumping water from underground aquifers for decades and decades. And uh, starting in the 90s, they began pumping more water from these underground aquifers than can be recharged by rainfall alone. It's gotten so severe that in some places, the land has sunk by up to nine meters. So it's a super productive agricultural region, but only because of relying on more water than is sustainable to use. Now, we know that California has gone through bouts of droughts and more recently floodings. What's been the impact of that on farming? Yeah, so these multi-year droughts that California and the rest of the Southwest have experienced have just really exacerbated everything down there. So there's less rainfall overall to recharge these underground aquifers. Also, droughts mean that uh, certain crops, especially lettuce, rely on lots more water just to stay healthy. And it also just dries out the air. So uh, more water gets absorbed into the air before it ever makes it underground. So it just it, it just really exacerbates the water scarcity problem in California, which is really serious. So I would assume that it has like quite the impact on the farmers too there. Yeah. So uh, the reason I started looking into this in the first place is because last fall, your listeners will probably remember, lettuce just disappeared from grocery stores for a little while in November and December. And a big part of the reason for that is because of drought and higher temperatures in the lettuce producing parts of California, which really like really severely affected the crops. Obviously, because we rely so heavily on this part of the world for our lettuce supply, especially at that time of year, all of a sudden, there was no lettuce, and the lettuce that did exist cost way more than usual. Now, food insecurities is a growing issue in this country. Uh, we've talked about that on the show quite a few times. Does this make that worse? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, um, when I talk to experts for this story, they, they, when I ask them, you know, what, what can we expect in the future? How is this going to impact us? I got a lot of different answers. People were saying, oh, you know what, farmers are uh, resilient and will find ways to continue to, you know, grow what they've always grown. I've, I heard people say farmers will, will definitely have to cut back on irrigated agriculture but they're going to cut back on some of the lower value crops first. So, the, you know, the higher value exports like lettuce will be all right. But what experts here in Canada pointed out is it's not just about can they grow it. It's by the time it gets to us, can anybody afford it? So all of these things increase price pressures on fresh produce at a time that food and especially healthy food is already very unaffordable. Are we prepared for the possibility that California won't be able to keep supplying us with these titanics full of produce every year, given everything that's going on down there? I wouldn't say we're prepared. Um, I would say that things are sort of slowly shifting to respond to this problem. So Agriculture Canada pointed out to me that indoor agriculture is the fastest growing part of Canadian uh, horticulture. So we grow more and more of our own, um, specifically peppers, tomatoes, and cucumbers in greenhouses. And there's this sort of newer technology called vertical farms, which is uh, more of like a completely enclosed, uh, controlled environment um, where they almost entirely grow leafy greens. Agriculture Canada pointed out that the amount of vegetables coming out of greenhouses and, and vertical farms is increasing year over year, but it's not increasing as much as you would 
hope given the scope of the issues facing California. So, you know, in some cases it was like 5% growth uh, over the last five years. Actually, lettuce had the biggest growth over the last five years. It was like almost triple the amount of lettuce that were growing indoors in Canada compared to five years ago, but pretty small number. It's still like a tenth of what we import from other countries. Yeah, there's still a big gap there. A massive gap. We would have to build like 265 vertical farms just to replace all the lettuce that we import every year. And we certainly don't have that. That is a lot of vertical yes. farms. I've heard this this idea of um, farming indoors and these solutions. But I just wonder, like, is this also an affordable solution or do we run into other issues there? The thing about um, indoor agriculture is that even if it's a greenhouse, so you're still getting light from the sun, which is free, in the darkest days of winter, you still have to often supply artificial lighting. You still have to heat those greenhouses. And in vertical farms, there's even more inputs that you need to provide, even more energy you need to provide to sustain that system. So a lot of it comes down to what the energy grid looks like, where that vertical farm is or where they're getting their energy. If it's running off of a solar panel, that might be a very you know sustainable vertical farm. If it's plugged into a power supply that includes, you know, coal-fired power plants, that's kind of a problem. So it's not just about the cost, too. It's about whether these things can be considered sustainable, you know, and I think some definitely are or are headed in that direction and others aren't necessarily. You know, it's interesting that that we're talking about, to some degree, the salad that we eat, right? And I was telling um, some of my colleagues this, this funny story about how I try to get everyone in my family to eat salads and it never goes really well. But it is still such an important part of our diet and Canadians could, could eat more. I don't think we eat enough. Nowhere uh, close. Less than one in five Canadians get the recommended amount. So now we're hearing about this issue with, with California and having to, having to deal with this. What do we need to do to, to save our salad in Canada? Certainly diversifying our food supply. That, that's something I heard a lot, just so we're not so reliant on one part of the world that is having you know, such extreme pressures from drought and other um, climate change-related issues. You know, as you mentioned at the beginning, I think a lot of people just don't realize how dependent we are on this one little part of the world, which is, you know, has such extreme climate effects. So, you know, even starting to think about this is a big help. Kate, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Kate Allen is the climate change reporter for the Toronto Star. No. That's a no. That's a hard no. In terms of what we need for our new venture, the 100, they're... they're There's we can just be honest here, right? The hundred is Substack meets Masterclass meets The Economist meets The New Yorker. I feel like we said iconic and you guys are leaning ironic. Hey, T. Don't patronize me. Hey. I think the money is here. And Rome, I think your security of being very weird. It seems stupid and probably racist. Uh-huh. Well, you look tired and your face is giving me a headache. Oh, thank you. Another warm and fuzzy Roy family moment from the hugely popular HBO show Succession. The story centers on the super rich and frankly nasty Roy family who are fighting for control of the family company amidst the poor health and ultimate death of the family's patriarch, Logan Roy. The last episode of the fourth and final season of Succession drops tomorrow. It has been a wild ride. So how did we get hooked by such awful, irredeemable characters? You have to sit there and suffer. (laughs) And there's something addictive about watching the suffering. And Succession has made the suffering really satisfactory. And that's why we love it. Elsie Grandison is a columnist with the LA Times and an ABC News contributor. 
He has thought a lot about succession and how it got its teeth into us. The real intriguing thing about succession is that it's found a way to make everyone on the show completely unlikable, and yet we keep coming back to watch them over and over again. And not only that, sometimes we find ourselves empathizing with people who are absolutely completely unlikable, and that is power. Succession has managed to be just completely yucky, and you feel awful, and yet it's still addictive. Kind of like. Taffy stuck all over your body or something. If you think about shows that we love, even if you don't like everyone, there is like an anchor to the show. And this season, Succession decided to send that anchor away. It eliminated basically the patriarch of the show, Logan, and now you have all of his children trying to figure out who they are. And there was a glimmer in which I thought that it might actually be emotional for the children. He was ripped from them. And you want this emotional outburst to come, and it feels like it's going to happen, but it's succession, <laughs> and they don't give it to you, <laughs> and they turn the screws. Yeah, I'm actually I'm fine. Like I'm sure it'll crush me eventually. Freight train are coming, but today I'm yeah I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good for you. I mean, I don't believe you, but. <laughs> no. <laughs> well. <laughs> Either way, we should, you know, huddle because yeah. for some of us it's a sad day, but for others it's coronation demolition derby. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that's really kind of fascinating about this season through the story of Shiv, you know, trying to process her own personal grief in terms of what her marriage is and more importantly what it is not. Um, she has lost her father, and yet she has to be this woman in corporate America battling to have a voice, even though she's been here just as long as everyone else is just as capable, if not more capable than everyone else. And oh, by the way, the men in question are her brothers. Um, it's kind of a commentary about choices that many women are forced to make. The other thing that makes the show so addictive is because it is so unpredictable. And there probably is no more unpredictable of a character than, you know. Hello. Roman Roy. Tis I. Hey. How are you? Good to see you. We'd all like to offer our sincere condolences. Oh, thank you. That's that's very nice. Uh, yes. Refused. Oh. I have all the condolences I need. Tummy full. Mmm. Shall we? Well, it just hasn't hit you yet. Oh no. You know, I'm sure it will, but you'll be okay. It takes time. Okay. Well. <laughs> many many thanks. Many 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 many. We'll be fine. Okay. You have no idea, obviously, when he's going to fire anyone. You have no idea what Roman Roy is going to do. And because of that, I can't turn away. There's something, I don't know, delicious about watching him just blow up uh, for no other uh, reason than his own personal amusement. That's kind of addictive to watch, too. I think one of the things that made Succession so powerful early on was that it tapped into this sense of despair. And that's the connective tissue that draws us in. Because, you know, we don't know what it's like to have too much money. Like, we don't know what that wealth is. But we do know what loss is. And we do know what humiliation is. And we do know what it feels like to have despair. 
and watching these powerful people still have despair. We want them to kind of suffer a little bit because it also reminds us that there's this connective humanity there that we all have somehow, some way, you know, and watching this family navigate through that uh, is fascinating. And I think that's one of the powerful ways that succession taps into each of us very successfully is that sense of despair. Elsie Grandison is a columnist with the LA Times and an ABC News contributor. The final episode of the HBO series Succession drops tomorrow. Still to come here on day six, a bill to rein in non-disclosure agreements in Canada. I'm Manjula Selvaraja, in for Brent Bambury. They're being told they have to keep this matter secret forever. The introduction of 713 changed my personal experience by allowing me to feel safe and heard within my school. That's Kaylee Johnson. She's a grade 11 student in St. John, New Brunswick. And she's talking about policy 713, which is a set of guidelines designed to support and protect LGBTQ students in New Brunswick schools. Before policy 713 was introduced to schools, I had friends who were constantly feeling unsafe and even had people go as far as to physically hurting them and sending death threats, all because they were being their true, authentic selves within our school. Sade London is a grade 10 student in St. John, and they say that Policy 713 has had a direct impact on their quality of life at school. Policy 713 shaped my personal experience at school by just making it more like non-queer folk. Like, just being accepted, honestly. Policy 713 was established by the New Brunswick government in August of 2020. Earlier this month, the province's Department of Education announced that it's conducting a review of the document. And that has a lot of students worried. Having my basic human rights being debated is utterly dehumanizing. Just like anyone else, LGBTQ students need school to be a safe space. And honestly, with the review, it just doesn't feel like that right now. Said and Kaylee are among hundreds of students who have staged protests against the government's review of 713. One of their concerns is that the review might do away with the requirement for teachers to get students' consent before telling their parents what names and pronouns they choose to use at school. Premier Blaine Higgs has suggested he thinks parents should be informed. But LGBTQ advocates say that in some cases that could put students' health and safety at risk. Pride in Education is a group of teachers who offer support to queer youth. They helped draft Policy 713, and they say they haven't been consulted about the province's review of the policy. Gail Costello is co-chair of Pride in Education and a former high school teacher in New Brunswick. Gail, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Thank you. Good morning to you as well. You helped draft a Policy uh, 713. What does it actually do? Policy 713 is kind of a guideline that helps schools uh, be aware of the minimum standards that help support 2SLGBTQIA plus students have a safe, affirming environment. Now, under the policy, teachers can't tell a parent that their child has chosen to use a different name or pronoun in class unless the student gives the teacher permission to do that. What would you say to a parent who says... I want to know what's going on with my child at school. Well, I think I would say ask your student. Um, I think that it's important that kids feel safe talking with their parents. I mean, after all, kids have lived with their parents their entire lives. They know 
better than anyone else, whether their environment is safe. They are the ones that have sat at the family table. They've heard whether their uh, families are, you know, accepting or critical or um, loving to everybody or homophobic. So those students know best what their families are like. As teachers, we don't know anything about their families. And I don't think it's our responsibility to out those kids. The kids are at school. They're finding support and community for the first time. They're figuring out who they are. They're figuring out who their friends are, who they're safe with. They're building strength and confidence. They're developing as young children or young adults. And eventually, as they develop confidence and strength with this support system, they may come out to their parents. Um, but in the meantime, school is, you know, the other half of their world. It's where they get to build these support and trust systems. And um, so they first have to decide, um, come out to themselves in a sense, and then they may try it out with their friends in terms of pronouns. And then when they feel a little more confident, they may say something to a teacher. And most of the time, they're not telling us as a, come here, I have a secret to tell you. You know, they're just, it's just, you know, it's just part of school. And if they are outed when that support system is not there, I know for a fact it can cause a great deal of harm. And we have seen situations historically. They may get um, put out of their homes. They may be subjected to isolation when they get home. I've had students who their parents let them go to school, but the second they get home, they're cut off from social media. Their Wi-Fi is turned off. Um, some of them are susceptible to physical and mental abuse. And so I think we have to trust the kids they know their parents better than anybody. The Premier has said that there's no intention of getting rid of the policy. It's about reviewing a few specific points in it because the government is hearing concerns and complaints. That's what they say. What do you think of that? Well, we already know that there are hundreds of complaints. We're not hundreds of complaints. And when the Child and Youth Advocate asked uh, to see some of those complaints, they were presented with three, and they were really not credible complaints at all. One talked about the kitty litter boxes in the schools. I mean, if they're, that's what they're providing as evidence as to why they started this review, I think they're in trouble. So it was vetted. It took several years to create, and it was created by experts. It was created by policy writers who are the policy writers at the Department of Education. It was created by um, EECD employees who this is their portfolio. They're specialists in this area. It was vetted through teachers. It was vetted through Pride in Education, who are also teachers. They had discussions with students in GSAs around the province to see what they wanted in the policy or what they needed. And another comment that uh, the Premier keeps hanging his hat on is that this wasn't vetted through parents. Well, I guarantee you between all those policy writers, most of them were parents. So it was vetted through parents. But it should also be noted that there are no policies at the Department of Education that they put out there publicly and vet through parents. The Premier really made a point of trying to make it sound like this slipped in during COVID when nobody was paying attention. And that is not true at all. It was created exactly the same as every other policy was created at the Department of Education. I, I want to get into this other thing that you mentioned about the 
the kitty litter boxes in schools. In public statements about this review, the New Brunswick Education Minister and the Premier have, between them, brought up uh, drag queen story times, uh, the fairness of trans athletes in sports, and this myth of kitty litter boxes in schools, none of which are, are mentioned in the policy itself. What do you think is going on there? I think it, they're just, they are um, pushing and fueling transphobic hate. I think they're trying to rile people up. I think they are surprised at how much support uh, we are getting. You know, we talk about the difference between misinformation and disinformation. And maybe in the first couple of days of this, you might we were saying, oh my gosh, they're so uneducated. They don't know what they're talking about. But then as the days have gone on and they've doubled down on all of this, even though they've been debunked over and over and over, and some of the things they're saying are just so ridiculous. At this point, it's no longer misinformation, it's disinformation. And, you know, they are being called home homophobic and transphobic and you know they're pushing back on that and saying well absolutely we're not homophobic and we're not transphobic but I'm sorry if your premier makes a public statement and does not adamantly denounce that there are kitty litter boxes in your schools in New Brunswick then I'm sorry you're intentionally misleading people. You know, we started off this conversation talking about a a policy review, and now we're talking about misinformation, uh, disinformation. Uh, Is there a larger narrative here that worries you? Yes, absolutely. You know, in the past couple of weeks, we've heard the minister and the premier say things. Well, we just want to make sure that teachers are appropriately trained to be able to teaching this. Then we heard, well, we just want to make sure the policy aligns with the curriculum. Well, we want to make sure the kids are developmentally ready to be learning this sort of thing. We need to find out, is it fair that biological boys are on the same hockey team with girls? Is it right that biological boys are in the washrooms? You can take almost any of those comments and put them into Google and it will bring up Ron DeSantis from Florida. It's practically the exact same playbook. And it's just playing out. It's playing out to that sort of worldwide transphobic hate right now. Gail, uh, thank you. Thank you for speaking with me. You're welcome. Gail Costello is co-chair of Pride in Education. We asked Premier Blaine Higgs and Education Minister Bill Hogan for their comments. In a statement, the Premier said there are three sections of Policy 713 being reviewed, and he will not comment any further until that work is done. Minister Hogan told CBC Radio's Information Morning in Fredericton that the review has been expanded to look at the section on access to washrooms. The current policy mirrors the province's Human Rights Commission's language on washroom access. The Federal Human Rights Act makes it a violation to stop someone from using a gendered washroom because of their perceived anatomy. Non-disclosure agreements should not be used to silence victims. Uh, of sexual violence. That's Canada Sport Minister Pascal Saint-Ange answering questions about the decision to restore funding to Hockey Canada last month. The organization had its federal funding pulled last year after multiple allegations of sexual assault surfaced against Canadian hockey players, along with news that Hockey Canada had used non-disclosure agreements in settlements with some of the alleged victims. 
NDAs are legal agreements that prevent the people who sign them from ever speaking about a certain topic. They began as a way to protect trade secrets, but activists say they're now widely used to cover up acts of misconduct and abuse. Julie McFarlane is one of the co-founders of the campaign Can't Buy My Silence, and she helped draft a Senate bill that would rein in the use of NDAs in Canada. Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Now, NDAs were originally a mechanism for protecting trade secrets. What's the issue with how they're currently being used in Canada? Well, you're quite correct that they were originally developed in the 1980s, actually, and in Silicon Valley. So that probably gives you an idea of the original purpose uh, for non-disclosure agreements, which was to protect all this very um, commercially sensitive information that was being developed around technology. But as time has gone on, we've seen them increasingly used for not just intellectual property or commercially sensitive information. But now they are being added pretty much as a matter of default in um, settlement agreements for all kinds of civil disputes. So the most attention is being paid to disputes that relate to some kind of sexual misconduct, harassment, discrimination cases. Um, And these are the kinds of cases that we hear from people about on a daily basis, where they have reached a settlement, but part of the condition for that agreement has been keeping silent about it forever and not telling anybody else about this particular perpetrator. Can you give us a sense of the scope of the problem? How pervasive are NDAs in Canada? Well, there are now three studies, in fact, in the United States that estimate that one in three workers has signed an NDA. So that's pretty significant if you think about it. Now, also just to point out, the areas in which we are seeing the most prevalent use of of non-disclosure agreements to cover up misconduct of lots of different kinds is in low-income, low security, high turnover sectors such as hospitality, accommodations, and retail. So if you put that information together with the information that one in three workers has signed an NDA, I don't think a lot of people at Walmart are signing trade secrets NDAs. These are clearly going to be NDAs primarily that cover up bad behavior in the workplace. Is it true that women and racialized people are more likely to be asked to sign an NDA? According to our data, yes. I mean, this does make a certain amount of logical sense because the the environment of inequality and difference in power is, you know, very much an ingredient of leading to the issue of somebody being told they must be silent. And in the data that we have been collecting in the campaign, five times as many women will sign NDAs as men which is not entirely surprising because two very significant areas of use are sexual harassment, which is not always, but often male on female, and secondly, pregnancy discrimination, where people are not given their full benefits that they are entitled to, um, either while they're pregnant or when they return from maternity leave. And then we also know that if you are um, a black woman as opposed to a white woman, you are three times as likely to have signed an NDA. Um, And I can certainly just say from my own experience of hearing regularly from people that there is a great deal of suppression of complaints of racialized discrimination and anti-Indigenous racism discrimination in these NDAs. Julie, what happens if someone refuses to sign an NDA? 
we can't give people legal advice, but we have been supporting and encouraging people who are finding themselves pressured to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And let me just say that almost everybody that we hear from did not fully understand the consequences of that NDA when they signed it. It was just one clause in many, many pieces of paper. But if people do look and find they're being told they have to keep this matter secret forever from everybody, then we are encouraging them to push back. Because if you think about this logically, the party want, who wants the NDA, which will be either the the actual perpetrator of the misconduct or the organization for whom that person works because they don't want the embarrassment um, of them having worked for them. Those parties are the people who want this kept out of the public. So if the victim says, well, I'm not signing your NDA, you can go to court. Well, the other side isn't going to go to court because what will happen if they go to court? It'll all be in the public domain. So the NDA issue is also a massive fraud on the public in so many ways. It's a bluff. The party that tells you you must, must sign this or they'll take you to court is actually the party who are determined they're not going to court because then everything will be in the public eye. So now there's this bill that's currently before the Senate. How will that change the way that NDAs work? Well, the bill is important I think both symbolically and obviously practically. Symbolically, I think it's important that the government of Canada stops using non-disclosure agreements to cover up misconduct um, in the civil service, and we do know that they use them. And it's also important that they set standards for organizations that are federally funded in some way, like Hockey Canada. So the bill would prevent the government from using non-disclosure agreements to cover up complaints of misconduct uh, within the federal civil service. There's a number of conditions that have to be met, um, which would basically make this, you know, a much more victim-driven process. But basically, it's going to be very difficult for them to continue to use NDAs where there is any kind of public harm or safety associated with them, which if you think about it, is basically every NDA, because if nobody knows who the perpetrator is, they can be harmed by them again. And then for federally funded organizations, um, such as Hockey Canada, they will also have to show that they are not using them other than in these very exceptional circumstances and will be required to report to Parliament about their use and about the amount of money that is spent on settlement agreements with non-disclosure agreements. And the third piece, which I think is also terrifically important for people who've already signed non-disclosure agreements with the federal government or with a federally funded organization, is that there will be no use of federal funds any longer to pursue or to litigate a breach of an NDA. So what we were just talking about a few minutes ago, somebody saying, okay, I'm going to breach my NDA. They will no longer be afraid of having it enforced in the courts and having to pay back money because the federal government will not use any federal funds to enforce or to litigate a non-disclosure agreement. What do you think the chances are of the Senate bill passing? Well, I am an eternal optimist. I have to be in this line of work. So I have (laughs) some optimism. I do think that we are winning this argument gradually with more and more education and more public awareness of the harm that NDAs are doing. And obviously, that has been very challenging because of the secret nature of these settlements. And my own experience is that when I talk to people who are representatives 
or from all parties. And when I talk to lawyers who've been doing this work for years, when they realize just how prevalent and default and harmful this is, they are more than prepared to accept the argument that we should not be allowing NDAs to go any further than their original purpose. We need to turn the clock back. Julie, thank you. Thank you very much. Julie McFarlane is co-founder of the Can't Buy My Silence campaign. Still to come on day six, how a staircase anchors an underground dystopian universe in the TV show Silo. I distinctly remember hearing someone yell, stop that van. From CBC Podcasts, an investigation into how young men are being recruited and radicalized on the internet. And she asked me if I was friends with a guy named Alec Manassian. By a new supercharged form of hate. On Facebook, police say he wrote the incel rebellion has already begun. A dark online subculture that's spilling over into the real world. Boys Like Me, available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Manjula Salvaraja in for Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. You can live stream us on the CBC Listen app. We're online at cbc.ca slash day6. We do not know how long we have been underground or who built the silo. That's from Apple TV's new dystopian sci-fi show called Silo. The show's fifth episode dropped yesterday. Here's the setup. Something bad happened to the Earth a very long time ago, and the surviving humans now toil under the ground in a world that is deep, dark, and connected by a sprawling staircase. People live in these alleyways off of the stairs, and everything quite literally revolves around the stairs. This is the sort of thing that you walk in and you're just sort of in awe of. They are massive, they're huge. Zosha Millman is the TV editor at Polygon. She also runs a newsletter called 30 Flirty and Film. She talked to the creators of Silo about the show, the world they created, and the staircase at the center of all of it. When I asked Rebecca Ferguson how many stairs she walked up, you know, each day when they were shooting the show, Silo, uh, she told me she walked up about 30,000 a day. (laughs) And this wasn't just Rebecca Ferguson, you know, there's camera crews, there's other actors, there's so many different people who are just walking up and down these stairs, just shooting these scenes over and over and over again to make sure they've got it all right. So Silo is about this dystopian future where there's about 10,000 people living underground in a silo. Don't you ever think about the world beyond the silo? They have been living there for hundreds of years, long enough that they've kind of forgotten what our society looked like. You know, all they know that they got driven underground because Earth was uninhabitable. And in this silo, conspiracy is afoot. So we've got the central mystery of what happens when you leave the silo and why people keep dying in the silo. Some mysteries are best left unsolved. The stairs in silo are the means of transportation between these hundreds and hundreds of floors where people live. So that just is how people commute, essentially. You know, you commute up a couple levels, you commute down a couple levels. If you're really traveling to visit, you know, the bowels, you take a whole day to go up and down. They really represent kind of 
this analog life that is just, it's a struggle basically to kind of connect the society and you really have to work and climb and put some effort into getting places you want to go. When I spoke to Graham Yost, the showrunner of Silo, he told me that the stairs were, you know, the first thing they really embarked on when making the show because that's the way that you sell life in the silo. He told me that they were incredibly arduous to build. This is the sort of thing that you walk in and you're just sort of in awe of. They are massive, they're huge. He told me that, you know, when people would walk into the set, it felt like they were walking into something that was preparing for the end times, you know, just this huge three-level staircase. And production designer Gavin Bouquet really wanted the silo to feel practical, almost too practical for what life underground feels like. And the stairs had to feel very functional. They had to feel very accessible to all the characters and very plausible. All these little nooks and crannies that feed off in each of the floors. People live in these alleyways off of the stairs and everything quite literally revolves around the stairs. And you essentially get these houses and these apartments that are kind of in these recessed levels, like half levels, separate levels within a level. You get the sense of Silo's world as something that's definitely not this kind of sleek, you know, futuristic sci-fi. It's very dark and cement-filled. We only know the world outside our sanctuary is death. If you boil the pact down to one rule, do not say you want to go outside. When I watch Silo, I feel like the stairs really represent this kind of basically Silo's version of this American dream, you know, that technically anybody can walk up and down them, technically anybody can move through them, but it does take a lot out of you. It's a huge toll. It takes time and energy, and it will wear you down over time. And that is exactly the sort of way that people can kind of move through worlds, and that can go both for people who hope to do more and hope to kind of rise up through the silo from the kind of bowels of it, but also people who, you know, are up to no good and basically use the stairs to their own nefarious purposes. And the show needs to connect a little bit more of its dots, but it's certainly building an intriguing mystery that feels like it's very set in this world that is almost depressingly understandable how life would form around these stairs and how life would form underground and how you can kind of keep yourself sane even as everything feels claustrophobic and brutalist and awful. Zosha Millman is the TV editor at Polygon. She also runs the 30 Flirty and Film newsletter. Silo is on Apple TV+. Give us a fighting chance. We're gonna need strength. We also need courage. Magic. And you. That's from Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, a movie based on the classic role-playing game. D&D has been around for nearly 50 years, and it's as popular now as it has ever been. Live play podcasts and streams are pulling in big audiences. And D&D, or thinly veiled versions of it, has popped up in TV shows like Community, Riverdale, and of course, Stranger Things. How many hit points do you and Applejack have left? Twelve. It's risky as hell. But you're the ones on the battlefield. So it's your call. What do you say, Lady Applejack? You really gotta ask? No, Erica, we really don't. 
But beyond the fun of the game, a growing number of therapists are championing the specific benefits of role-playing games like D&D for mental health. Now, my D&D therapy group specifically targeted people with social anxiety and self-esteem issues. But initial research shows that tabletop RPGs can help people feel more socially connected. It can also increase self-awareness and independence in individuals with intense personality disorders. Dr. Megan Connell is a psychologist and a certified geek therapist. She runs therapeutic role-playing groups as part of her practice. She spoke with Brent Bambury in March. Hail and well met, Megan. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I love being here. Set the scene for me. If I were to join one of your Dungeons and Dragons therapy groups, what would I be wearing? Whatever you were wearing that day. It is a come as you are type of group. It honestly doesn't look that different from how most people play at home. It's people sitting around a table telling a story, making jokes. And the biggest difference with my group is I weave in some interventions and things that I'm trying to get my players to learn through our game. And how would you do that? How does the thing that's relevant to the particular player and and their personal life outside of the game get taken and put into the game? Yeah, well, so in any group, you're going to be trying to find group members who have similar problems. So my groups tend to be folks with social anxiety, sometimes ADHD, autism spectrum disorder. And so typically there's a lot of social anxiety that we're dealing with. And so it's learning how to advocate for yourself, to speak assertively, enforce boundaries. And so it's creating those opportunities. It's not so much trying to ham-fistedly force people to do this, these things. It's more giving them opportunities to practice by creating, uh, you know, NPCs or non-player characters who are really annoying and are going to try to push boundaries. Hmm. And us as players all sitting around and talking about how would we want to try to enforce this boundary and to let people try role-playing out several different ways of enforcing boundaries and to see how well that works. Interesting. So is this group therapy or is this one-on-one counseling with the dungeon master? It's group therapy, the way I run it, at least. It can be done as duet play, so where it's just the game master and a player. Uh, There's several people I know in the U.S. who are doing it that way. I think also a few in Canada. But for the most part, it's done as group therapy, where you have three to six, maybe up to eight players, and your game master running the group and teaching these skills. So does it work better when the person that you're counseling has some D&D experience? Not necessarily, I have people who have played for several years in my groups, and I've had people who have never picked up a 20-sided die before. And it's not too hard to pick up. We scaffold the game to help people learn. Um, I help them build their first character together. We you know, learn abilities as we go, and it works really well. Okay. So what, what does role-playing unlock that you can't get from traditional therapy or that is harder to get that way? The thing is that's really, really powerful here is it's the character. It's your character doing things. It's not you. Hmm. And there is something so disarming about that of like, well, it's my character trying this stuff. It's not actually me. Uh, I had a player very early on when I first started running these groups who I was trying to get them to stand up for themselves. And so I put them in an incredibly frustrating situation. And then when they finished the situation, they interacted with an NPC who was incredibly indifferent to them. Mm-hmm. And this player was role-playing and got up and was in my face and pointing at me and yelling <laughs> at me. And it was I paused for the game for a moment. I'm like, hey, time out from the game. You just yelled at somebody. 
look at you. And their first thing was like, well, it wasn't me. It was my character. It's like, yeah, but you were controlling them. Right. And that was so powerful for them because this was a person who never gave themselves permission to stand up for themselves. And the idea of yelling at somebody, that was beyond what they felt like they could do. It, you, I could just see all these like, you know, wheels turning in their head where they're like, oh my God, oh my God, this, this did happen. How fascinating. And so this role play where you're not role playing yourself seems to be the freeing aspect that allows our ego to set aside and for us to engage and learn. Hmm. So, but, but do you have other players who, who maybe are embarrassed to inhabit another character or, 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 you know, feel shy about, about taking on the mantle of another identity? Certainly. And the biggest thing I think for that, though, is I role play with them. Mm. Um, Dr. Boca Mazzaro and I, uh, he's from Take This, uh, we developed a training and we talk about that the therapist has to play. If the therapist is in the room just observing or just providing commentary, nobody's going to role play. And so very early on, one of the first things I do is I'll have my players meet an NPC, so non-player character, and it's somebody that I am controlling. And I give them a goofy accent and I really <laughs> get into character. <laughs> and with me being the highest educated person in the room, I have the most quote unquote authority there. And by me showing that it's okay to play, it starts giving permission for everybody else to play. And I don't force anybody in the room to role play. If they don't want to talk in character, it's fine. Um, I do try to encourage it as much as possible. And eventually, like, it does start to become fun. Like, uh, usually there's, if we have people who are hesitant to role play, once they see me doing my really super bad accents, um, they're much more willing to try. And then when they see other people doing it as well, they kind of jump in. So when you say super bad accents, I mean, how bad is it? Is it, oh, is it sort of like a, Dra a Dracula type thing or? Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Like I could do some like, yeah, I, I like doing... Um, like goofy characters, like, uh, so in Dungeons and Dragons, there's goblins and kobolds, and I always give them, like, these little weird squeaky voices, and they talk kind of funny, and I, I go and do that, and I get my whole body into it, and it's just, like, so kind of ridiculous that everyone's, like, you know, laughing, but then they're like, okay, okay, this is, it's okay for me to be goofy if the doctor's being goofy. Huh. So what inspired you to incorporate Dungeons and Dragons into your therapy practice in the first place? I was playing myself um, in two different games, and I had two very seemingly different characters. And it was through playing them that I started realizing some really important things about myself that I needed to work on in, in therapy. <laughs> and uh, I recognized, though, that these things I was realizing, I, I had them behind so many layers of defenses, I mm -hmm. probably wouldn't have ever really uncovered them. But it was through this kind of disarming engagement with character that really allowed me to see into myself. And you know, I was like, I have to use this in therapy. This needs to be done. And uh, it took about a year and a half, but I eventually got my groups going and did a couple of pilot groups and they went incredibly well hmm. and then expanded out. Um, I had three or four groups going a week up until the pandemic. Um, the pandemic really put a, a wrench in everything. And then um, was writing my book on it. Uh, that kind of paused running groups while I was writing about running groups. Right. But now the book is there. And is the book a Bible for other therapists who want to get into this? It's called Tabletop Role-Playing Therapy. So does it tell therapists what they need to know before they launch into it? Yes. Uh, it's 
I would call it a Bible, but it's definitely like at a very, very extensive overview of, you know, what we have in terms of literature, what populations could work well with tabletop role playing therapy, how that might look for different goals that you would have with those client populations, ethics to consider documentation, how to build therapeutic encounters. It really does walk you through how to do everything. I'd say, of course, best practices is always to work under supervision first and then to build out from that. So when you have a breakthrough in D&D therapy, do you need to do a follow-up on on what you learned in traditional therapy in order to kind of lock it all down? I think that can be helpful. I don't necessarily think it's necessary. I've had a few players who were just in the D&D group and they weren't doing individual and they from what they told me. So this was all self-reports. Of course, we have to take it with a grain of salt. They learned a lot about themselves and they were able to start applying it to their lives. Like I had one player who recognized a, a certain like stubborn streak that they had that could get them into a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. And it, it like that came to light in play rather than in a real life situation where they would get into a lot of real life trouble. So it's wonderful to have this kind of consequence free environment where we could try a lot of different things, see how it works and then see what we want to do with it. Mm. Dr. Megan Cannell, really, really fascinating. Great to talk to you. Good luck with the book. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. Dr. Megan Connell is a psychologist and the author of Tabletop Role Playing. That interview first aired in March. Rift from the Headlines. This is Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. Guess the story that links the riffs, and you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. The Ting Tings with That's Not My Name, David Bowie with Changes, and Loverboy with Working for the Weekend. Crystal Hack of New Lisgard, Ontario, guessed the headline we were looking for. The Weekend, that's Abel Tesfayet to you and me now, says he's giving up his stage name. Congratulations, Crystal. A Day 6 tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now here's this week's clue. that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put Rift from the headlines in the subject and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day six tote bag. You can listen to that clue again anytime at cbc.ca slash day six. 
time, weather, and... From the headlines. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Mickey Edwards, Pedro Sanchez, and Yamri Tasfu Tadasset. Our digital producer is Paul Hentiuk. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. I'm Angela Salvaraja, in for Brent Bambury. Thanks for listening to Day 6. I feel like we said iconic, and you guys are leaning ironic. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.